0: But we're taking a break from the book of Samuel. We'll pick it back up in the new year. Um, And this is the season of Advent. And so I thought I'd touch on a theme in Romans that has to do with Advent. Um, Advent, as most people know, means coming. And it refers to the two comings of Jesus. The first coming, when he came in humility. uh, When he came and he wasn't really recognized for who he was. And he laid down his life for the sins of the world. And the second coming... That we sang about some tonight, when he will come in glory, an open, um, obvious manifestation of who he is. So we're stuck. We're not stuck, but we're living in this time between. And the Bible calls this time the last days. Now, I'm wary about that expression because when you say last days, people think, oh, like which world leader is the Antichrist? And they get into all kinds of crazy schemes about saying when Jesus is coming. I don't think that's the point. The point is that Christ has come. And from now until when he does return, the Bible calls these the last days. And his people wait for that day. They actually long for that day. Um, and the virtue that is, I think, the hallmark of waiting on God to come is the virtue of hope. It is the virtue of hope that Paul speaks of in this section. Living according to the promises that he gives us in the gospel Living according to promises that we don't fully see fulfilled in our time here. That's why, as Paul says, we hope for them. So we're living in this time of tension when, as many Bible scholars have said, there's this already fulfillment of the gospel. There's things that he's already done, but there's a not yet component to it. And I wanted to talk about this passage because it speaks of suffering. And I just feel like the American church doesn't talk about suffering enough. But Paul seems to think it's central uh, to his understanding of the gospel and his understanding of the mission of the people of God. So before we get into the text itself, let me ask you to consider the not yet that you are aware of in your life. Does everybody know what I mean? These promises of the gospel that you don't see coming to full fruition in your life or maybe in the lives of other people. What comes to mind that brings you pain when you're alone and you're not occupied with something else that when you think about it, it brings, it brings anguish, it brings pain, it brings confusion. That's part of what I'm talking about. What places in your life or the lives of those you love aren't right, aren't done, aren't the way they're supposed to be yet? That's the, some of that not yet that we have in mind. Where in the world do you see problems and tragedies that there's just no words for and no obvious remedy for? That's some of what Paul is getting at. Those things that you look at and you just shake your head and you have no idea how to respond or what to say about them. Where do you see things in the church that seem small and paltry and weak and foolish? The gospel has to do with them. And Paul is very interested in those things. He wants to encourage us, in fact, that is precisely in those areas in our lives and in the lives of others that we have a calling, that we have a ministry to. So let's look at our text. Verse 17. I'm backing up just a little. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, this language of slavery should take you all the way back to Exodus. Whenever you read the scripture, you should think of what reminds me of other sections of scripture. And this should especially remind you of the book of Exodus. We've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Paul wants us to be assured and to have assurance in this calling that we have in our lives. And he wants us to not fear that whether we belong to him or not. He wants us to be confident of the fact that we belong to him. So he uses this Exodus language and says, God has not given us fear, but he's given us assurance and a promise. Remember, Israel in Egypt was called God's firstborn son. And God told Pharaoh, if you don't let my firstborn son go, I will strike your firstborn son. God was guarding and protecting and looking out for his son, Israel. And when Jesus came, he came, among other things, as Israel in person, as God's chosen son in the flesh. He came in person as the unique, beloved Son of God. And the promise that, that Paul has been talking about in Romans is that you and I can be adopted sons of God through, through faith in Jesus. That all those who have faith in Jesus are baptized and are following him, they are sons and daughters of God. That's the spirit of adoption. We've received this spirit. And this spirit, as Paul says, cries, Abba, Father. Many people have heard this expression, Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic expression. It's an expression of affection and intimacy for a father. But I think it's important to look at where it comes in Scripture. A lot of times we invest in this word our own nostalgia about uh, the words around fatherhood. But the other place that this word occurs is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is betrayed. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling with his vocation. He knows what his calling and his vocation means. He knows what's coming. He knows the shame associated with it. He knows the pain associated with it. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, it says this in Mark fourteen, thirty six, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is wrestling in his human nature with the will of the father, with the suffering, the shame associated with being on his mission. He's wrestling with that vocation, and we know that it's in prayer and in his appeal to the father that he that he comes through to the other side to say, I want to do your will no matter what, no matter what it costs me. That's what Paul has in mind when he says this spirit of adoption cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. It brings this desire in the life of the people of God. Father, even if it's painful, I want to do your will. I want to be a part of what you are doing. Paul wants us to be assured of our identity. He doesn't want us to be insecure. Well, I don't know if I'm loved by God. He wants us to say, I am God's son. I am God's daughter. And he has put me on this earth to be a part of his mission. Now, Paul recognizes that there's reason by looking at his life and at the life of others to doubt that he's the son of God. Verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may that we may also be glorified with him. So the spirit, Paul says, in our hearts confirms this is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he confirms that we're the sons and daughters of God, that we stand as heirs of God. Now, what could that mean? We've all heard stories of people with a distant relative that passed away and they were the only heir and they received a vast estate. But we're talking about God. So, with God, what do we stand to inherit? What do we stand to inherit from him? Now, he goes on to say that we are co heirs with Jesus. That whatever Jesus is going to inherit from his father, we are going to inherit it with Jesus. We who have faith in him. So what is his estate that we stand to inherit? Well, Paul's going to use a word in a minute that is what we stand to inherit. And that word is creation. It's everything. Now, I want you to consider that for a minute. We are heirs of everything. We live with an awareness of the limit of our resources. But Paul is trying to invite us into a mentality where there are no limited resources because we stand to inherit everything that belongs to God. And it's all of creation that we stand to inherit. And then and then it's this confusing thing. He says, if we suffer with him in order to be glorified, and this is where the suffering comes in. He it's a stipulation, as it were, on the inheritance. But it's not like, OK, you have to suffer in order to earn the inheritance. No, we've already received the inheritance by believing the promise of the gospel. We're sons and daughters of God. We're going to inherit it. But we follow the one who is going to be our co-heir. And in order to get into his inheritance, he had to go through suffering. And so do we. A servant is not above his master. All right. And suffering is the path. To what God has in store for us. And this is a theme that is repetitive in scripture. We're in the book of Samuel. Or we have been in the book of Samuel. David suffers before entering into his kingdom. He is in exile. He is misunderstood. He is wrongly treated. That is his suffering before entering into his glory. Jesus suffered before entering into his glory. And we are called to suffer before entering our glory. Verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says the sufferings of the present set in contrast to the glory that God has in store for us. It's, it's no comparison at all. Paul has a glimpse of the glory and therefore he can think lightly of the suffering. Now, I should add that I think the suffering is all kinds of suffering. I don't think it's just persecution for being Christians. We don't face a ton of persecution in the United States, but it's all kinds of suffering. Paul's thorn in the flesh, the anxieties about care for the people that we love, worry about weakness, concerns of all kinds, I think, fall under this suffering. And then Paul says something interesting. He personifies creation. He says creation waits. Now, this is really important. You know, the environment is a huge debated issue in our culture. And I think it's important for us to use good biblical vocabulary. It's not the environment, it's creation. It's the cosmos that God made that is good, that is beautiful, that is well-ordered, that speaks of him. And Paul says creation is waiting. Creation is like a person who's longing and waiting for something. What is it? What is he waiting for? Guess what he's waiting for? Us. Why, creation is waiting for you and I. What's going on here? He says, He is waiting for, with eager longing, for the revealing of the sons of God. This is that good biblical word, apocalypse. Apocalypse doesn't mean a horror movie or um, something like that, it means a revealing. I picture. Uh, an artist who's built a statue for a, 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 you know, in the center of a plaza in a town and they have a big sheet over it and they pull the sheet off and it's ta-da. There it is. Right. That's what revealing is. And creation, not the environment, but, but, but creation is waiting for the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Why? For this is where, stick with me, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. When God made the world, it was good. God delighted in the world he made, and he put mankind, and his intention was that we would oversee God's good creation with him and unfold all of the latent possibility that God put in creation. That is what he intended, and that is what he is still going to do. And God has decided the creation will not come into what he wants it to be until those who are to care for it come into what they're supposed to be. And that's you and I. That's the people of God. God wants to pull the sheet away and he wants to reveal the sons and daughters of God changed into the likeness of Jesus, radiant with his character and glory so that they can rule with him over all the good world that God has made. And Paul acknowledges, sorry, guys, we don't look like royalty right now. We don't look like what we are going to look like. And the best example of what Paul has in mind here is look at Jesus in the transfiguration, radiant, resplendent. They fell down before him and look at Jesus as he walked around Galilee, just another Jewish guy from Palestine. Not like in the movies with a white, you know, a white robe that was glowing like and everybody else's wasn't. He looked like any other guy. Creation was only meant to thrive when the God chosen stewards of creation came into their rightful place. And that's what Paul was getting at here. And this is so hard for us to grasp because I think we're used to thinking the gospel is about going to heaven when you die. The gospel is about the promise of the resurrection and mankind dwelling in the new creation, the new earth that God has in store. So creation is waiting for the God-designated stewards to come into Europe. You with me? All right, Verse 20. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected it in hope. What's going on here? Because mankind fell, because mankind sinned. God subjected creation to futility, to the second law of thermodynamics, to decay. Creation, as glorious as it is, is not what God intends it to be. Those moments that you have where you see something in nature and it's sublime and it's overpowering, that is only a glimmer of what God intends creation to be. But God subjected creation to futility because he doesn't want it to come into its own apart from the steward's. That he made to take care of it. And that's you and I. And everything in our lives right now. Is preparing us to take care of God's creation. To be rulers over his creation. Adam was meant to be that ruler. Adam and Eve and their descendants were meant. To do all this unfolding of God's good order. But they failed. And Jesus came as the first true human being. He came as the first person who lived entirely as they were supposed to live. And through his death and resurrection, gift of the Holy Spirit, invited us into following him in that same kind of life. When Pilate says, behold the man, he brings him out, here he is. You could say that he doesn't know it, but he's prophesying this is what humanity is meant to be. Obedient to God, speaking the truth in love, laying down their lives for those they're called to lead. And we're called to follow him. God has decided that creation will not thrive until the stewards he designed for it are are as God intends them to be. And we've got to be we've got to have this big on our hearts, because, as I said, there's a lot of debates about the environment. There's a lot of debates about those issues. And you know what? People that care about the environment, even though maybe they blow it out of proportion or maybe they worship it, they're not wrong to be concerned. And we have a lot of work to do to figure out what the real issues are. But we need to understand that we're called to be stewards of God's good world. Amen. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says the creation is groaning and is in labor pains. The images of a woman in labor. All right. And if you've ever seen labor, then you know what Paul is talking about. He says creation is not just like, boy, I wish that the sons of God would show up. But creation is in pain. Creation has eager longings. Think about in Israel right now, families of hostages who are still in captivity. Think of the longing and the groaning that they have to see their loved ones back with them safely. That's a little glimpse of what creation is waiting for. It is longing. And again, this language of groaning, you should think, where have I heard that language before? Israel groaned in slavery in Egypt and God heard their groaning. Well, creation now is groaning. Things are not as they should be. And creation longs for the sons and daughters of God to come into their own and to come into the inheritance that God intends for them. And Paul is acknowledging that we are adopted. We have the first fruits of the spirit. Christians are the sons and daughters of God, but we have not come into the fullness of our inheritance. And what is the fullness of our inheritance? For Paul, it is the resurrection of the body. It's not going to heaven when we die. It is being with God, but it's being with God in the bodies that he designed and that he wants to raise up so that they can last forever. And then Paul says, we groan. And again, this is where I would ask you to think about those areas in life where you just it's an area that you don't know what to do about. It's not right. It's not in a good place. And you seem to be at your wits end as to how to help it. That is precisely where God has us. And that is precisely where the Spirit of God enters into our lives. Why do we groan? Well, we groan because our bodies break down. This last week, my back has been out and I've been groaning all week. Ask Shannon. We groan because we're weak. And we're ignorant a lot of the times. We think we know a lot, but a lot of the times we don't. We're ignorant. We're, we're led by the Spirit, but there's so much of the gospel that is not yet So much of the fulfillment of the promises that God have, has, that has not yet come. There are pains and disasters in life that we have no words for. And you hear about them every week, don't you? You hear about them every week, and if you were honest, you would say, "You know what? It's just a tragedy, and I don't know what to do about it. We groan. The world is in labor pains. But Paul says we hope. And again, the virtue here is hope. And the virtue is waiting. Creation is waiting. And we are waiting. And there's different responses that people have to this not yet of the world. Some people's response to the way things are, to the fact that our bodies decay and grow old, is have all the fun you can while you can. Squeeze everything you can out of life because one day you're going to be gone and that's it. That's the hedonist response. Or... Labor tirelessly to defeat death with science. Y'all aware of the, uh, the people that are that are trying to with science make people live forever. I mean, it's a it's a big area. People are convinced they can make it happen. Or maybe you labor incessantly through exercise, fashion and cosmetics to cover up the fact that you're a dead person walking. That you're on your way to the grave. That's the cult of fitness and beauty. Or maybe you just pretend a lot of people just pretend it's not the case. They just sort of push into the background the fact that they're getting older and they're just trying to be blissfully ignorant of the fact that death is coming for them. But for Paul, he says, no, Christians acknowledge it all. Christians face it head on because we believe in the promise of the gospel. And I don't want to suggest that the things I said are entirely wrong. We should enjoy the good gifts that God has given. Right. With gratitude. We should pursue knowledge and we have a responsibility to be scientists and to promote the advance of knowledge. We should be good stewards of our bodies and not abuse our bodies. But Christians should have ease and poise and confidence despite our groaning because of the promise of the resurrection of the body. And all of it comes when we rightly acknowledge that the current state of affairs is not the way God intends the world to be. What he intends, where all of history is going, is a new heaven and a new earth ruled with Jesus, with his resurrected sons and daughters. It's the promise of God's intention all the way back to Genesis to being fulfilled. I encourage you to read Genesis 1 through 3 and then read the last chapters of Revelation. They give us a picture of where everything is going. But we don't see it yet. And every time you're like, man, this is short of glory. This is short of what God intends. We're called to bring it to God. It's more of that not yet. Verse 20. Actually, I want to read this from the Gospel of John because I think it helps us understand glory. All right. The promise is that we will share in the glory of God. This is in John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feasts were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you think, Oh, okay. Greeks want to see Jesus. It's time for Jesus to be glorified. What does Jesus have in mind? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loves his life and loses it, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Jesus' glory is his being lifted up on the cross. Jesus' glory is to take upon himself the sin of the world and to enter into the place where the world is broken and be lifted up. At the hand of sinners. That's his glory. And he wants us to follow him there. He wants us to enter into the confusion and the pain and the anxiety that is in the world. Because the world is separated from God and groan with Jesus. And offer that up to the father through the means of the Holy Spirit. The cross was meant for mockery and shame. But in actual fact, it reveals the glory of God in the heart of Jesus. His being lifted up on the cross was glorious. So that's the glory he means for us to share. Now, again, I said in the beginning that Paul is trying to encourage us. And hopefully I'm encouraging you. Hopefully, you know, I mean, everybody knows you bear this pain. You bear these troubles all the time. Paul is saying, yes, you're following your Lord. And you're taking those things that are broken and you don't know what to say, but you lift them up to them and you say, father, look at this. So here's my so what out of these, this section of Romans. The so what is that we are assured that we are the sons and daughters of God. And we should learn to wake up every day and say, I didn't earn it, but I am God's son. I am God's daughter. I stand to inherit all that is his. And if that is not you, if you're not in Christ, then repent, believe the gospel, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit that will cry out in your heart. Abba, Father, when you see things that aren't as they ought to be, what should you do? You should learn to groan. You should learn to lament. You should learn to say, Father, look, this I don't know what to do. This is not right. And if there's something, I can do great, but I I just don't know what to do. Offer it up to him. Offer those things to the Father with the Spirit. Just name them before the Father. Do you ever pray that way? I mean, you, you, you have somebody on your heart and you have no idea how to pray for them. And you just mention their name. The Holy Spirit takes that up. The Holy Spirit groans with us and in us and takes that and offers it to the Father. And the Father hears. And then finally, do what you can. Do what you can. You know, when Abraham was called to be the father of a nation and year after year went by and he didn't have a kid, he just kept doing the things that God told him to do. And they didn't look like much. But here we are because of the faith of Abraham. Amen. Jesus' life didn't look like much. But here we are because of the faith of the Son of God. And there's all kinds of small things that when you do them, it's like, this is so pathetically small in comparison to the greatness of this problem. But the scripture promises us that God himself is working with us in those little things that we do. Amen. So do the good that you can in faith that God the Father is working with you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. Come to the table.